Hello everyone, going to get straight into it today. We have a really deep podcast for you. Philosopher Farhan Idris, whom many of you will remember from the podcast episode on the legacy of colonialism and Raffles Must Fall, returns to New Narrative to talk about critical theory, philosophy, social justice, aesthetics, art, politics, all of those things and more. And also about Brass Basa Open, which he helped co-found and their work trying to create spaces for people to come together to have very deep, important discussions about our society, about our politics, about our lives. So do check it out. Do check out the links in the show notes to Brass Basa Open's events at the Singapore Writers' Festival next week. Do check those out. And also, as always, if you enjoy our work, please do visit our website, our shiny new beautiful website, newnarrative.com. And uh, if you like to support us, please do join us as a member, newnarrative.com slash join, or you can donate newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a green and pink uh, batik shirt sitting in front of a map of Southeast Asia with two other men. And my pronouns are he, him. And joining me once again today, my co-host, Sean Francis Han, Editor-in-Chief of Wake Up Singapore. How are you doing, Sean? I'm good, good. Really excited to get into this one, critical theory, you know, um, critical humanities. This is like right up my alley, right? So anyway, I am wearing a yet another green basic. That's all I have in my closet and black jeans. And my pronouns are he, him. Why are you yeah. guys talking about like the stuff you wear? I mean, come on, like PJ Tom is wearing, I mean, this nice uh, shirt, but he's wearing, pe- uh, he's wearing shorts actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, joining us today, Farhan Idris, do you want to go and introduce yourself and what you're wearing? Hello. Hi. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually wearing like something I got for two pounds. My jacket is from, what do you call it? Carousel. Uh, okay. My pronouns are basically like, I mean, I'm comfortable with he and him, but I'm also comfortable with all other pronouns. Except for what? Don't call me dude, that's all. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) I have a bad habit of calling people dude. Alright, so let's just jump straight into it. So who are you? I mean, what what is the work that you do? What's your background, right? I mean, we're, we're talking today about something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about your work with Brass Basso Open more generally. So uh, I'm Farhan, uh, Farhan Idris. So like I'm the co-founder and like co-convener of this like I call it a critical humanities forum in Singapore and it's called Brass Basa Open uh, we do lots of like a, how do I put it uh, we do lots of discussions a lot of like film screenings a lot of like workshops a lot of very in, like innovative um, how do I put it programs to actually like you know get people together and talk about stuff that are you know in the humanities and people want to learn more um the other thing is about like, I think we leverage quite a bit on our kind of connections with uh, people in civil society, people in the arts. And I think that's why like, you know, the kind of base started from there. Uh, I mean, as, uh, as for my gra- background, actually, like, um, um, currently I'm a, sadly, I'm a freelance, freelance researcher and writer based in Singapore. Mm-hmm. But um, I did my graduate studies um, in, um, in, in two countries, uh, Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, in Netherlands and Belgium, you know, there's this sense about like how, um, I wouldn't say intellectualism, but like how uh, critical theory, critical theory or, you know, slightly leftist concepts are actually like um, discussed like throughout society. Mm-hmm. And also because like activism uh, in the Netherlands and Belgium, you know, they are 
quite more and quite more engaged and quite more like you know um I think for me like um when I when I stepped into uh, these two countries uh, it was I it was amazing because uh, you don't uh, political expression was something that's taken uh, that is taken for granted mm. right I mean in Singapore but like for, I think it's uh, in Belgium and Netherlands it's, you know it's a way of life mm. uh, for the towns that I was living in there always there will always be you know like um, socialist like student community so like trade you know like some sort of like um, local chapters or trade unions so Yeah. Did you ever sort of sit in on any of these? Go attend this? Because I'm just, I'm just thinking. Is that where you got the idea for Brass Bass? Not really, but like, how do I put it? I think people, uh, when you have your, you know, your peers taking, uh, taking all these ideas, taking mm. actually like putting, putting stuff that is uh, abstract into like the, the kind of everyday life. So you kind of get, uh, well, like there's this, uh, there's this burning, not say burning desire, but if I were to say like. A one day, how can I make it happen in Singapore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Other than that, so I was talking about like a, the kind of how natural this uh, discussing politics is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I want to get into sort of what Brass Bassa Open does, right? So I I think one of the mainstays of Brass Bassa Open and, and one of the main um, things that Brass Bassa Open opened with was just uh-huh. readings of critical social justice, sociopolitically oriented philosophical texts, right? Yeah. So why, I mean, why did you choose these texts? Like why, why, why does Brass Bass Open kind of have that, that, that critical bent? Okay, yeah. uh, when we start, uh, when we first started Brass Bass Open, like uh, I was not alone. So like I have two, co- like, two co-founders, uh, Sean, and, Sean and Nazri, they can't be here today. And uh, because we already had this idea about like, hey, you know, one thing to do something like this. And when you talk about discussions, usually like what we try to do, it's uh, basically, okay, we we, uh, we do have an idea in mind. For instance, um, it's like, it's, for instance, it's translation, a very neutral thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Just give you an example. And and we kind of divided our tasks. So like, for instance, um, my, my co-partner, Nadri is a literary scholar. So like he would kind of, we would task him to do that. To have mm. a discussion on that, and okay, uh, the other thing about like Brass Open is this: uh, we are very very open to collaborating with a lot of like a, a lot of like uh, how do I put it? Civil society organizations, or I mean, or I mean, know like gender um, gender based uh, movements. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we've done like um, other than like having discussions, we actually also done fundraisers. For for instance, like uh, I think I love it, loved it a lot. Like we've done fundraisers for Project X, mm-hmm. we've done raises fundraisers for the T project. So um, and I think the reason why we kind of did this is because we also want to tell people that hey, these are serious matters. You know, like talking about sex work, talking about decriminalization of sex work. It's not just something that people uh, you know like it's not just a slogan. Mm-hmm. Uh, real life experiences, uh, real life experiences of people. Uh, We are discussing this, uh, you know, from uh, uh, from why people uh, people want to actually, you know, do sex work, for instance, mm-hmm. and the T project. Um, yeah, so like, uh, when you know, when you talk about like uh, queer histories in Singapore or South Asia, we we'll tend to talk about you know like how these are kind of imported. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, LGBT like movements are imported from the West. They are not because like we do have histories of you know like. Uh, queer movements and LGBT uh, histories here in Singapore, uh, not not yet in Singapore per se, but like uh, in 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 generally in Southeast Asia, and we've not actually had like productive discussion on it. Mm-hmm. 
wanted to tell people that hey like these are part of our histories too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so I think I, I want to just sort of ask this question here which is you know I think some some people may see activism in terms of like getting on the ground and right. then like doing that kind of physical direct kind of work but you're doing readings discussions and then later we'll get into like the theory film sessions that you have so <laughs> I mean okay. I just I want to kind of have your take on that what do you think this achieves what do you think it does for civil society or for our political situation in Singapore okay this is my own perspective it's not perspective of like my co um my co-collaborators, but uh, for me, like I think the the reason why I'm continuing with this is because like I can I can forge connections with like you know like this intersection between civil society, uh, between people at large who are you know like who want to do like who want to do a lot of like um, critical thinking, uh, in a way that is uh, very uh, very comfortable with them, mm-hmm. and. Um, and by doing so, um, how do I put it? Uh, yeah, um, and uh, people might be, you know, people in uh, civil society might be interested, people in the arts might be, you know, like, confi- not say confident, but, you know, like, knowing that, like, a community like this exists, like, mm-hmm. you know, you can take, uh, this take takeaways uh, can be, you know, like, translated into, like, um, into uh, into thinking, into activism, so... Um, so I I do think we don't really do like direct inter- like activism, but we do kind of indirect activism. Mm. And uh, when we talk about Brass Basa Open as a kind of space uh, to to talk about like a very critical issues, um, mm. very philosophical uh, uh, issues on a philosophical level, for instance, mm. um, sometimes we actually uh, have discussions with uh, you know like book authors who uh, actually they are very keen about talking about their like recent books uh, mm. and. Uh, these are people you know like from all over the world actually so mm-hmm. like they are academics they are uh they are writers um and we can, so we call ourselves like as in there is a way in which like we don't call ourselves like an academic space as, at all mm-hmm. but we call ourselves a kind of like para academic space which is a kind of space that is away para uh from academics uh spaces but you know not into the kind of formal academic spaces which are actually quite sterile as well mm-hmm. So okay, so take me through kind of one of your sessions. What what happens? What typically happens? There are actually no typical like brothers open sessions. So mm-hmm. uh, as I said, we do about some workshops. We mm-hmm. do like uh, okay, some workshops are based on like uh, the interests of uh, personally our members or our like our core team. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was this workshop we did. Uh, we did about like um, photography and like sh- uh, and vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. In, it means to say that you know like how uh, how uh, the kind of production of photography um, how does it like you know how is it ethical in a way for instance like um, you talk you talk about like pictures that are situated in like war torn narratives you know like um, is it uh, is it ethical to kind of talk about that way like what our kind of like what exactly our when we are the audience of this particular photograph like how are we complicit into this like mm. this narrative of you know like watching people suffer something like that all right, so um, so I I'm I'm sort of noticing that like aesthetics, art, mm. right, features yep. a lot in the work that Brass Basa Open does. Is there a reason for like why that link? Okay, yeah. So like yeah. Uh, a lot of our we uh, how do I put it? We uh, we have collaborations with a lot of art spaces. Uh, for instance, uh, for instance, this uh, art space uh, in Geelong is called uh, Sawal Stats. 
we actually lo do lots of collaborations with them and they provide us space in which like we can uh, we do our like I think our flagship uh, film discussions mm -hmm. and we mean my flagship is I think we are the longest uh, right now I think we are the longest current like film discussion like event uh, in probably in Singapore right now mm -hmm. uh, what we do in film like uh, they call it theory film sessions is we actually we pair a lot of these critical theory readings with how and a lot of like films and films we we uh, do not really like uh, we don't really actually like like mainstream films. We wouldn't say we are we like uh, art house films lah, but we try to stay away uh, films from films that are very much in our kind of like uh, in our popular aesthetics. You know, a lot of like this uh, uh, East Asian uh, three films. Wong uh, is that the kind of thing? Okay. We also like try to uh, try to move away from like European French film noir, for instance, and mm. we try to uh, try to curate. Uh, film theory events that uh, that showcase a lot of like cinema from all across the world. Mm. We've done like films from Lebanon, we've done films from like Guinea-Bissau, uh, stuff like that. Um, mm. So uh, it opens opens avenues for people to, to see that a lot of structural issues are actually, you know, like uh, are being dealt uh, across the world. Okay, for instance, um, we did a film screening on this like particular Mauritanian uh Mauritanian film director though, uh, called Abraham Sisoko and in the film it talks about basically about how Europe has um, impoverished uh, impoverished like sub-Saharan Africa mm -hmm. and the kind of like um, a, what are the ramifications in our current system are the kind of like truth and, recon re truth and reconciliation like movements are they actually doing the stuff that, that they need like so like IMF has been giving all this like a how do I put it loans to sub-Saharan like a countries with but with a lot of like all this you know like a lot of this interest. Uh, how are these actually affecting a lot of like a people, uh, people on the ground in uh, these kind of countries? And a lot of these filmmakers actually have like a kind of like uh, they know what's going on and they try to kind of tell us you know like this uh, a, these are issues that can also be represented in uh, on the screen. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I think um, there's a lot of appreciation about like stuff that mm -hmm. are kind of like currently uh, happening all across the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I want to sort of put some pressure on that, which is, okay, so you're taking films that fall far outside of representation. Right? I mean, I got to admit, when you said no Wong Kawai, no European stuff, I was like, what's left? I mean, you know, because it's... You, you know, you go to the projector or you go and look at art house films and it's always kind of one of the two, right? So so I, 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 I like the I love the idea of sort of taking these films that fall outside of conventional representation and then bringing them into the the, the not the mainstream, but bring them into this space where, you know, you can get people exposed to it. I just wanna ask sort of how do you bring theory into that and really what's the kind of political or critical goal here? Yeah. Okay, uh, I think basically we uh, the kind of critical or political goal is to tell people that hey, uh, you know all these genres that we have, they are how do I put, they are not just um, how do I put it? They are not just telling you that hey, you know this aesthetics happen and like mm -hmm. wow, this like film shots is amazing, mm -hmm. uh, you know like uh, to and then like we we don't want to develop a kind of like community of you know like film critics actually, mm -hmm. we wanted to de develop a community that tries to read. Mm -hmm. tries to read films as, as social texts mm -hmm. uh, and 
Um, okay. Uh, while creating this, uh, I'm not just the one who's creating this. Like my co co uh, co collaborators uh, do the same thing too. Mm. But we have already been exposed to a lot of kind of like um, I think world cinema, for instance, and a lot of themes. Uh, like um, uh, stuff on like nostalgia. Can I mean you can see how like uh, Singapore is like famous for having all this all this like post colonial nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, uh, we've d- uh, done some um, something on like the narration of on suicide of suicide in films. Mm-hmm. Uh, how like people are motivated to uh, you know like uh, to do all kinds of actions because they are you no know, they run out of options something mm-hmm. like that. Uh yeah so like um keep keep in touch uh how do I put it uh with our Facebook page facebook.com slash brass open to find out more about like I think we'll be doing a lot of a lot more events after after November okay wait if uh COVID COVID dissipates lah we'll do more public events but yeah. right now I think we can only focus on like you know stuff uh stuff we can do on Zoom mm-hmm. yeah I mean the Zoom events are great also and I and I think that brings us to one of the events that you know has recently been coming out right which is arts basa so oh okay what's what's arts basa okay um like we called it uh we have this like roundtable discussions uh it's called arts basa for no particular reason but mm. no particular reason because uh, a, 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 a we couldn't think of a, a good name basically uh we wanted to talk about the, uh, the kind of situations in the arts where people are grappling with for instance, about like how uh, you know minority representation in the arts. There's like at least for the past two years, you know, there'll be discourses around uh, you know representation around visibility. But how exactly uh, you know like how that how does it change things? For instance, uh, uh minorities uh, you know like are minorities actually leading the work? Mm-hmm. Do they get support from like other people in the arts, mm-hmm. or are they like just treated like the kind of like cultural currency in which like in which institutions can say, hey, look, like we are doing uh, like a lot of stuff uh, you know like social justice but ultimately these are not um, the kind of um, cultural capital they mm. are not like uh, they have the cultural capital but uh, at the uh, on the backs of like minorities mm. yeah. yeah so like um, yeah so uh, that was the purpose of doing Art Basa sessions we are gonna do it again mm-hmm. uh, on teams like that so mm. uh, stay tuned okay so I mean your work with Brass Basa Open isn't sort of exhaustive of the work that you do. So you're doing a a thing with Singapore Writers Festival that's coming up quite soon. So can you tell us about that? I heard something about cookbooks and I was very intrigued. So currently uh, in the next uh, Singapore Writers Festival will be held around two weeks from now. Blah mm-hmm. uh, Blah Open, we have uh, around like three uh, three programs. Okay, uh, The first one is uh, led by me. Uh, it's on, you call it like, I call it cookbooks as as philosophical text, intuition and experience. So basically, you know, when we talk about cookbooks, uh, we talk about cookbooks as though it's like it's a very passive thing. Okay, you just copy, just copy, uh, copy some recipes without your own, you know, like input. Mm-hmm. Why are people re- like when people read cookbooks in 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 the sense that like people are uh, you know like the imagination is this like um you derive imp- your imagination from the cookbook itself, not from uh you know like not from your own like. Um, perspective and uh, there are also a lot of issues with regarding cookbooks and cookbooks are not just cookbooks they sometimes they have the voice of the author mm. and they say something about like um, hey how I got into like cooking and then um, they some of them will tell them will tell us that uh, I've been like when I lived in Europe like I've been alienated from my own culture and the 
uh, okay, the concept of alienation is a very like philosophical concept. So I've been uh, alienated from my own like culture, and how do I, how do I uh, come to grips with like coming back to my own like to my own heritage? Just to mm. actually like you know um, to actually reassemble what I know from like you know from my grandparents, mm. and what you know the the thing that like. Usually we don't. Obviously we don't get like. Uh, usually a lot of us, you know, we don't actually get physical possessions of, from our grandparents. You know, we actually get a lot of intangible stuff, mm-hmm. right? You know, like stories, a lot of like recipes. Um, so, um, uh, so that is why I what I meant by cookbooks are philosophical texts, and there's this idea that I think you know that you know like in French cuisine, in like uh, in a lot of European cuisine, like this idea about um, you know everything has to be to the hill, uh, follow the follow the recipes uh, in uh, in detail. Mm-hmm. Although, like, in our current context, you know, like, in Asian cooking, Southeast Asian cooking especially, you know, like, you call it, like, agak-agak, right? Like, agak-agak, like, uses a lot of intuition. How do you develop, how, you, how do you, like, develop a kind of sense of intuition and a sense of imagination? So, uh, the other one is about, like, um, how, like, uh, the Asian, Southeast Asian classics, uh, classical texts, they are, you know, they are still like in our imagination, mm-hmm. and when we say our, in our imagination, means to say that also like a, a lot of these translations uh, into like classical text in Malay, uh, when it translates into English, uh, is readapted into other mediums, and yeah, so uh, this is uh, this is one of our, uh, another our program. It's called under under their skins, the lives of classics in translation and adaptation. The last program we have, it's uh, very, very unique. Uh, it's a panel discussion with uh, with artists and it's called You Auto-Complete Me. Uh, you Auto-Complete Me is a lecture performance and workshop that aims to inculcate critical reading skills in its participants by exploring a lot of this, like, relations, we call it intimacies between, like, chatbots, how you interact with chatbots, <laughs> and our everyday use of it. Okay, so those are the three... Um, the three programs we have uh, for Singapore Writers Festival. Hmm. Okay, so um, yeah, so I, I I find I find the whole series of, of of things and events very very fascinating, right? There's a very strong link, right? Which I asked you about just now. The strong link between aesthetics and politics, right? Right. So I I want to kind of get into that a little bit more, right? So you know. Yeah, what, 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 why, why art? Why cookbooks? Why films, right? Why that whole aesthetic medium? I think uh, it's simply because these are the kind of stuff that we do in our everyday life. And when we kind of like assess these particular things, mm-hmm. we don't really access it in a way that, you know, like it's very, you know, like straightly, you know, like, um, let's say that um, I have reasons, blah, 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 blah for it. No. Like, we do, like, appreciate things because, you know, like, there's aesthetic considerations, mm-hmm. uh, how you find things, you know, like, beautiful, how you find it, how you find things good. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are kind of, like, these are kind of intuition that you actually don't develop, like, alone. Mm-hmm. You develop in a society, develop this in a society whereby it can be, it can be veering towards the kind of, like, if it's uh, racially dominated, for instance, you... Mm-hmm. And when racial domination just doesn't just stop at, like, uh, structural issues, they actually, like, permeate our own, uh, how do I put it? A, our, our critical uh, understanding of uh, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, um, a lot of like my friends say, uh, Chinese friends, uh, they have this thinking about like, hey, I want to learn Malay because it's a simple language to learn. 
But, oh, okay, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. But that's that and then is, like like they will point out that it's that there are a lot of words that are kind of similar to English, and that's what makes it simple. And not only that, like it comes to the kind of like realization about you know they have this uh, consideration that hey, actually Malay <laughs> is spoken by people who are PJ is like melting down right now. <laughs> I'm just it's, embarrassed on behalf yeah, of yeah, yeah. It's uh, no, I've heard and and, and, it's, and it's less complex lah because it's less complex because you know like a Malay culture is less complex for instance. You know, <laughs> Discussed like a few, oh few months ago about like Pranakan. <laughs> <laughs> no, and they come to me and they say this because they think that I'm Malay. Oh, right. I'm okay, like, I, I can't help you out here. I'm not even. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you just assume that I'm Malay? <laughs> so there's this like a high culture about like English language and look, um, like, you know, minor cultures like Malay language. And that is mm-hmm. not true. So mm-hmm. that's, that's because like people do not do not think that there are a lot of things going on in uh, the Malay language, in Malay literature, mm-hmm. in Malay critical theory. Uh, and yeah, these are the kind of things which you know. This kind of kind of, kind of things that uh, Singaporeans actually implicitly uh, hold within them, but they don't really know. So you're saying there's like a, a connection between the realm of aesthetics, what we consume yeah. every day, like yeah. So okay, so just I want to sort of shed more light on this because this is a frustrating thing that's happened to me more than once. Where does this stupid idea that Malay is a simple language less culture come from? Okay, look, I mean, like, these are not stuff that, you know, is picked out of thin air. Like, mm-hmm. I think PJ would know that a, a lot of these historical aesthetic considerations, it's much, it has also a lot to do with, like, a lot of, like, British representations of, like, Malays uh, in the colonial era, and it, it passes down to post-colonial leaders, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? I have way too much to say about that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, during the colonial period, the British uh, had a policy of um, segmenting and dividing the population into economic niches. Um, And in order to justify that, um, or perhaps in justification of of that, I mean, it's, um, there's a correlation, it's, and I'm sure it influenced them both ways, but they would then uh, talk about the 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 ethno-linguistic groups that occupied each of these niches in ways that justified why they would occupy that so the chinese were you know industrious and hard working but also you know not necessarily trustworthy and um the but they were willing to to work themselves to the board and, and uh but you had to monitor them closely so uh, you know, and they were, and they had a tendency towards uh, conspiracy and secret societies. So they occupied the, the you know the coolie merchant trader segment of the population, and so the stereotypes fit that right. Uh, and then, whereas the, uh, for the local Malay uh, indigenous population, the British had a policy of, well, we don't want to upset the local society and structure because we need our collaborators, the sultans, to have. Um, you know, maintain their position in that society, maintain their power. So we want to keep Malays in agriculture and don't let them into industry, into trade, into the ports, um, into the port sector. So then they talk about Malays as well. You know, they like living on the farm. They like having the simple life. You know, they're so much more uh, artistic, family oriented, you know, and, and so it justifies them then being kept there. So there's this whole relationship between, uh, actually, as you're saying, aesthetics, uh, culture, and how we create, we think of culture, um, and then your economic position in a society, which is 
very very much manufactured by the British period, uh, with the collaboration, of course, of local elites, and Anglophile uh, elites. Sorry. Sorry. Anglophile elites. Anglophile elites. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and also, of course, international capital shaped uh, Singapore, shaped Malaya very much, uh, because we had Chinese capital, we had Indian capital traders. Uh, all exerting and influencing and shaping society as well. Mm. So, so you know, there's a deep, intimate, long-standing relationship between colonialism, between uh, economics, on our culture and society. Because, of course, then these were adopted post-independence by almost wholeheartedly mm. by the by P- the PAP and, of course, by LKY who then attributed these very essentialist characteristics to the different races, you know, and, and these have continued to underpin how our government manages race since, um, even though, of course, they are ahistorical and not rooted in any, uh, you know, deep understanding of history um, or any understanding, you know, genuine understanding of our culture. Um, and, and they're very much more about uh, the bureaucratization of race into uh, certain categories that allow for easy management and minimal um, sort of uh, minimal critical thinking about them, but you know, just make it easy to manage race. Yeah. Okay, so I actually want to add on for it. I think this is a very important point. You know, mm. like uh, when you talk about public intellectualism in Singapore, mm. uh, basically like uh, just like intellectual work in Singapore, you notice something, right? You notice some, like the discourse is uh, kind of like pushed through by a lot of Chinese Chinese middle class academics or authors. Mm. So Brahmasa Open will try to kind of like tell people that hey, look, you know, like eh, you know. Uh, uh, it's not just minority representation. It's actually more, also more about how you know, like uh, minorities can lead, like a can lead uh discourses surrounding critical discourses surrounding like uh you know like the abstract stuff, uh, the everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say something. There's this uh previously there's this uh there's this tendency about like how you know like um the, we call it the theory and practice uh, distinction like only like the the well of only white people or only like Chinese Anglophile people can talk about theory where everyone else only talk about their own experiences mm-hmm. so it's that pra- practice thing uh, and there's a re- like a reason for it because like um, well uh, publicly a lot of uh, you know like um, a lot of uh, uh, intellectual intellectuals in public they are because ultimately also you know about uh, how uh how academia is structured in a way that racially yeah. disproportionate. I think I think what you Something were like saying that. that the intellectuals, academia also replicates the yeah, current uh, hierarchy mm. of power in current, Singapore current, yeah. because it's very much funded by it and influenced by it and a tool of it. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, what, what in a healthy society really, academia should be uh, uh, critiquing power and resistance to power and trying to... Um, yeah, I think in very different ways, but we don't get that in Singapore. Yeah, but I'm not just thinking about academia here. I'm thinking about spaces that are outside, you know, like in the interstices of like academia, mm-hmm. the art sensible society. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at it, you know, like minority artists, generally when they are engaged, they are engaged about, they are usually engaged by institutions talking about, ah, oh, what are the experiences of like being Malay in Singapore? And this discourse has been like, being there for like 20 or 30 years. I mean, I don't come to PJ and say like, how, how does your work, how does your work, like, you know, um, 
speak uh, speak to the Chinese experience in Singapore. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, because the Chinese is the default, Correct. you know, it's yeah. the normalized Singapore. Yeah. And somehow you or a, a Malay or an Indian is is a deviation from the normal. And so, you know, you're expected to represent that mm-hmm. deviation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, I want to sort of take it now into your general idea of a theory of change right so what i mean by that i mean it's a very you know revolution, sort of a, revolution. yeah you know so so you're obviously in the business of revolution right i think that's I'm, that's 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 not you know I'm, here I'm, for I'm, question I'm, but I'm, it's a I'm, kind of cultural aesthetic okay maybe cultural shift like, yeah kind of a, that kind of a revolution so i want to hear so how do you think that it's going to happen uh and how it should happen okay what i can think about this like what i like how I think it uh, it might not happen. Mm-hmm. To put it this way, like how do I put it? Singaporeans are more and more educated, and a uh, but education doesn't like how do I put it? Doesn't guarantee a lot of like social change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a uh, like we are pushed to like you know like STEM discourse. We are pushed to a lot of like discourse surrounding like I don't know coding or something like that. A uh, education doesn't actually like give you critical resources. Um, I mean, like, a mainstream education doesn't give you the kind of uh, tools for you to actually engage the world uh, in a way that you can, you know, like, you can involve yourself in in changing it. Mm-hmm. So, basically, as, as you know, like, if education is mine, uh, it's, if it is an expression of the economic privilege, privilege of mm-hmm. uh, people in certain backgrounds, mm-hmm. so you, you'll expect that these things will replicate, like, over and over the years. And, I think the cliche about like education, um, or at least mainstream education, can educate people into being not racist. Mm-hmm. That is not that is not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, so I, I think mm. I should also mention a few well, a few months ago. Now we uh, had a podcast with Stefan Ohani, uh, who talked uh, very much about education, about meritocracy, and stressed that uh, it's about. Um, limiting access to resources, right? The, right, the yeah. whole idea of meritocracy and education. He, you know, he critiqued the the banking system of education, as I think it was Paulo Ferreira who first uh, articulated it, um, and you know, and and its inadequacies for uh, preparing people to, uh, you know, meet many of the the challenges of our modern world. So. Uh, if you're listening, do check out our uh, podcast from several months ago, Stefan Ohani. But, uh, you know, I think uh, this is, I mean, education, fascinating. Maybe we should have another podcast on it because there's just so much to talk yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on, on that note of education, so you, I want to kind of pick up on something that you said there, right? Which is, okay, we're getting more and more educated. And I think there's this idea that, okay, with education comes a certain sense of, um, I guess, social political awareness but the distinction that you make there is that you only get that social political awareness with the critical resources when those are made available to you can you share with us what are some of these uh critical resources like critical resources actually you know like brothers open we actually do not operate we uh do not operate uh with like we are not paid to do this uh mm-hmm. we are like generally i think uh, a lot of like our our work is uh our work is based on like the what a kind of labor of love is it for us to <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. know that like a community of us uh, there is a there exists a community of us you know we can mm-hmm. come together in a very non non confrontational manner mm-hmm. uh, and you know like if people will not be kind of afraid to uh, to discuss a lot of this like uh, 
a lot of these things with us. So I I I want to kind of get into a little bit of like. And this is like really, I'm stealing PJ's question here. But how do you make this sustainable? <laughs> I want to talk about sustainability. Right, okay. um, yeah. So I mean, for yourself, you've you you're you're working. I know Nasri has a ton of you know full time appointments, um, and Sean as well. But um, yeah, how 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 do you make it sustainable? Because you do a lot of work. You know. Uh, no, I don't. I'm lazy. <laughs> I mean, you 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 uh, you know you set up the sessions. You have to get the space and everything. How do you sort of yeah, how do you manage that? You know, because it's all unpaid labor. How does that work? Okay, uh, a lot of times also, like, uh, I do, like, I actually do read widely in the humanities. So there was, I think that, if, for instance, if there are books of particular, like, concepts I want to discuss, mm. uh, like, I come to my team members and say that, hey, look, uh, let me do, do this particular, like, part, uh, particular, like, uh, discussion. Let me do this discussion of existentialism and decolonization, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when you are, you know, when you when you have an event, actually, you are forced to read stuff. I mean, for me, lah. I mean, because uh, when I kind of uh, when I introduce for certain events, I not only need to host it, I also need to give a critical background on why people are discussing it, and mm. this involves my background knowledge as well. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of work. I'm kind of also, we are not doing this like. I think I, I need more people involved and maybe like I probably need to retire as well because I think social energy wise mm-hmm. has been quite terrible especially with like COVID as well mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so I mean um, is, is that I mean that's the difficulty right with, with keeping it going but you've I mean the team has done a, a very great job so far and so I was just I was a bit saddened to hear that, that you know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, the social energy is being sucked out and that, you know. I think, but it's fine because it's not, it, it's not just me alone, it's uh, my team. So I mm-hmm. think my, uh, my team is uh, very, how do I put it? They are, they are generally keen in talking about, you know, like current trends in, uh, mm-hmm. current like uh, trends in anthropology, mm-hmm. current trends in literature, current trends in like cultural mm-hmm. studies. So uh, even without me, like, even without, you know, like, uh, yeah, even without me, like you know, I think we can still draft a lot of people to conceptualize new, uh, new events, new ideas for people to discuss. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I have actually I have no problems in it because like, I I think we've done enough to actually have a critical audience that no, knows that you know like having a, a having developing tools in uh, in the humanities and developing tools in critical humanities is mm. is fundamental as well. So you feel like the space is going to continue even if you kind of step. Yeah, it is. Down. It is definitely. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, uh, sort of the last question from me, I guess it's a it's a carryover question from many many weeks ago when we interviewed Loon, right? Um, and I think the idea there is that you know some people have this idea that theory or the critical humanities is like really highbrow and it's, and it's really inaccessible, you know. And and then there's that slogan, you know, if your theory is not accessible, then it's not really praxis because only the only the academy is going to read it, right? And it's not going to change anything. It's not going to spark or incite any new movements or currents of thought. So I guess I kind of wonder how do you kind of negotiate the two, right? Because you're talking about concepts like you know, negative dialectics and... Uh, I've not talked about that yet. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but you know, but, you know, these are, you know, they, 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 they're not only, they're not to say, oh, super difficult concepts in themselves, right, but they're yeah. concepts that are born out of like such a huge history, right? That spans back 
you know, it's giant discussion from philosopher responding to philosopher, responding to philosopher, and you need that whole context in order to kind of get into it, <laughs> yeah. right? So there's a big barrier to entry. So yeah, how do you sort of negotiate that? Okay, I wouldn't say that it's a, a big barrier to entry, but you need to notice also, like we also kind of, when our programs are, a, how do I put it? They, they tend to a lot, like, a, involve a lot of like people who are already like a, educated in the liberal arts mm-hmm. or are like interested in liberal arts. So, uh, we do attract that audience, but we must remember that like a lot of social stuff that uh, we are currently facing, in terms of you know like in terms of our everyday world, in terms of civil society, these are actually very very complex issues. Mm-hmm. Even when you talk about like stuff about like minimum wage, we want to talk about stuff about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. They are kind of like they are they are complex issues that cannot be just discussed within narratives or within uh, within expressions that are. That are very basic, mm-hmm. you know. Like when uh, when discourse takes uh, complex forms, you also need to develop kind of develop a kind of vocabulary that responds responds to this particular a uh, this particular set of circumstances. And mm-hmm. the humanities provides us stuff like this. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that like you know like some people do not use this as, in a way to. Uh, it doesn't mean that like some people use a lot of like this very obscure stuff to actually mm-hmm. kind of. Um, separate themselves from, you know, like, the outside world. But mm-hmm. I believe that a complex issues require, like, complex thinking, require mm-hmm. complex vocabularies. Mm-hmm. And I think we shouldn't shy away from it. At the same time also, like, this, uh, these vocabularies, vocabularies can be, uh, can be uh, expressed to our full understanding. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, I mean, like, a few years ago, we would not even talk about, like, um, intersectionality as a concept in social justice mm-hmm. but right now you know a lot of our youth uh, are using it mm-hmm. are using it uh, in uh, in ways that like we know that they are using it correctly mm-hmm. or yeah, they are using it in ways that like um, ways that Kimberly Crenshaw the founder like the uh, someone that's um, the uh, black thinker that has uh, coined this term mm-hmm. uh, they are using it do, uh, in the ways that has been you know used correctly so activism the youth you know the youth like not me like I'm old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the youth like you know like people from eighties, eighteen to twenty five, mm-hmm. even before they already know that kind of vocabulary. Vocabulary so like it's very mm-hmm. heartwarming, mm-hmm. and these are the people who you know who you know that will come into activism sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean uh, it's 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 an almost kind of like personal question for me because it's an issue that I'm struggling with you know especially even with wake up singapore right like back in the day we would make memes about ah gst is going up haha boo to the baby kind of thing you know and it's very like straight to the point and it rouses kind of it rouses people's emotions right we had that like oh you know the the pap like they give you a chicken wing and then they take the whole chicken you know that kind of stuff and it rouses people it gets the views it gets the clicks but and then now when we try and talk about things like you know regressive tax the tax system in general capitalism then we get accused of being like, okay, you're like highbrow. Like being being political, politicizing. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, it's politicizing. And it's just, oh, you know, this high theory and, and all that. So I can't win here. I need, right, I need yeah. answers. <laughs> you know, like, like one option, you know, okay, I'm just pandering. And the other option, you know, it's, it's way, too, way too highbrow. It's way too inaccessible. It's, you know, theory fluff. So, no. Historically speaking, <clears throat> a lot of these ideas do start out, um, you know, a lot of ideas that we take today as common cu- currency start out as highbrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it just takes time. We just need to explain them again and again. Mm-hmm. 
but also demonstrate their relevance to our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example is how we think of the economy, mm-hmm. because these ideas start out as very highbrow, mm-hmm. right? What is the whole concept of an economy actually only really came into existence around a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. um, and for people to conceptualize this idea that there is this broader working of transactions between people that then adds up to this abstract number, you know, or concept that and that you can then say, oh, the economy is improving on, mm-hmm. you know, for it was very, very alien, mm-hmm. right? But today it's like the air we breathe, oh, you know, the economy is doing well, you know, mm-hmm. everyone knows that, right? And then the concepts embedded within that of capitalism, right, of tax, you know, of redistribution, these all also started out very highbrow ideas, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that, you know, you have to remember all of this, a lot of what we exist in today is just like the, the, the ideas are really, really recent in terms of human history. Mm-hmm. The idea that we have these systems where uh, you tax and then you redistribute and you take care of society in that way. Again, very, very, um, you know, uh, uh, even like a hundred or just over a hundred years ago, a lot of people still existed in this idea of feudal monarchy. Mm-hmm. And the tax is something you give to your local, you know, lord who in, in, in exchange protects you, but they have all these you know, the idea of rights, for example, mm-hmm. you know, that is post-war, right? Mm-hmm. Fundamental, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So again, I I mean, I, I know it doesn't really help us because we want lives to be better now. Mm. But speaking as a historian, you just got to wait and you keep making this argument patiently mm-hmm. and eventually it becomes a lot more current currency. And I think if, if, I, if you give me a minute, I probably can think about something which was... Mm-hmm. Um, no, but that's uh, that's a great know, answer. More I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that because that's kind yeah. of like gives but me the, the, the theoretical. My, my answer. Uh-huh. Or his answer. Probably I mean both. Answer. both. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, l- let me add on uh-huh. add on here. Like there's also this what I call the weaponization of his- the history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. So as you know, like the discourse surrounding like uh, how do I put it? Like a unitary culture. Chinese culture, like Chinese heritage, like <laughs> yeah. it comes like in the eighties, like, it comes in the nineties. There's a reason for it. Like people, uh, at least, uh, a people in uh, in power, they actually like you know, um, how do I put it? Weaponize a lot of this like historical Chinese uh, philosophies mm. as mm. to kind of a, as to provide foundations of what they what they think is like yeah. you know like uh, how we should govern society. I mean, a, as you said, like I mean, there are a lot of this like Confucianists. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our midst mm-hmm. and stuff like that so like um, yeah stuff like that also can be uh, weaponized as well but uh, also we need to know that critical theory and philosophy is not a modern concept uh, and it's not just a kind of like a, the uh, the mainstream western philosophy that we we normally encounter is not a, it has to be decol- like it has to be de- decolonized as in like if you talk about philo- philosophy as a kind of like discuss um, the kind of like critical thinking, the kind of like rationality, mm-hmm. you need to realize also like you think think about uh, you mean to say we think about uh, philosophy as an in a kind of like normative manner, mm-hmm. normative meaning to say that hey, uh, you know like a you do you do philosophy means you do critical theory critical theory means uh, that's something we should aspire to, mm-hmm. but okay I want wanted to uh, tell you that you know like this cannot be just you know like limited to West, uh, Western thought you know like. Historically, we do have like Indian thought, Chinese philosophy, Japanese philosophy, 
And these are not really like stuff that uh you know like talked upon through. Although like you know the current current impact or the current um mm-hmm. the current concepts in Indian philosophy just like you, you know like just uh when you it hits you 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 uh, you just like to be honest it just uh when it hits you right you find out that stuff that was discussed like two thousand years ago are relevant now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in I think in Indian philosophy uh you know like uh philosophers like for instance uh Nagarjuna. The Gardena talk about this like uh, concepts called concept uh, called emptiness. Emptiness something like uh, emptiness uh, in a way that you know like whatever we uh, whatever we uh, the kind of uh, the kind of properties of stuff they are not actually innate within itself, but it's actually construed. It's actually created by like other processes. In similar ways, right? Like we can see society. Society is not just it's not just uh, a soul entity. It's actually the way in which like histor- historically society politics and economics uh economics reacts in and you can pinpoint a certain way in which uh pinpoint a certain way in which uh certain things like are the uh are the direct cause of like our current like political uh, political juncture so uh okay you can read up more <laughs> Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's a human failing that we think that uh, the way things are today was both how it always has been and how it always will be. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, our minds work like that. I'm sure there's a psychological explanation for it. Mm-hmm. But this is something which, as a historian, I find very exhausting to push back against. But, you know, people always say, well, you know, society is like X or Y. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm like, well, no, it was drastically different. Just 50 years ago, two mm-hmm. generations ago, we acted, lived, thought in very different ways and we have changed a lot, you know. And in order to understand our history, you need to understand that our perspective has so fundamentally shifted because of the events that have happened since. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then in 50 years, all of this may not exist again. We, Our grandchildren will be thinking in very different ways. The kind of things that we have today, the borders of Singapore, you know, the things we take for granted, all may not exist, mm-hmm. right? So there are, you, you can't just act on the assumption that Nothing's going to I change. I hope that in 50 years, uh, the, the concept of Chinese privilege is not contested anymore, you know? I <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't, can't wait for that day. But yeah. I mean, okay, really, really last question. I know I keep saying last question, but really last question here. Now, you're tackling a lot of issues. Uh, Brass Pass Open tackles a lot of issues that are sort of cultural, ideological, right? And I would even say quite polemic. Like you're talking about sex workers' rights. Like you're talking about things that I think... In, in, in the proper Singaporean academic discourse, we don't talk about. We don't talk about Chinese privilege. We don't talk about sex workers. We don't talk about trans people, right? And so you're kind of talking about that, but is there ever a sense in which that culture of fear or, or the silencing of the government ever kind of creeps into the space or creeps into the way that you decide what should and shouldn't be discussed? Okay, I mean, to be honest, uh, I think we, we sometimes take that into account as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's why, like, uh, for instance, you know, when uh, the, I've been, the odd discourses surrounding, like, uh, the death penalty, for instance, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I would want to have, have actually a discussion, uh, kind of like, how we have discussed this in the humanities, beyond just talking about, like, is this, you know, like, is death, uh, is death penalty, how do I put it? Uh... You know, like you conjure up statistics, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, you want to find out, you know, the moral, like, moral injustice of, of something like this. Mm-hmm. But again, like, I think we, uh, we don't do it like when the kind of like when the heat or intensity of the discourse is here. Like, mm-hmm. I think like these kind of things we also need to 
also need to take a, we don't say take a step back lah, but I think it's for our own at least for me mm-hmm. um, I think we I don't don't want to unlike don't want to be unlike a kind of uh, answering lots of questions by you know like uh, by people who are not who are not understanding of what we do mm-hmm. so uh, progressively I think uh, I, I think yeah we do actually we discuss stuff like this very very indirectly mm-hmm. yeah Okay. I uh, think also, you know, if I can add something, John, the unfortunately, okay. the it's not just the fear, right? The fear is real, mm-hmm. but it's not the fear is not the main thing. It's how the contours of our conversations Correct, yeah. end up getting shaped by government assumptions, and one of the most insidious is the very transactional way we look at a lot of things. The cost benefit analysis, hmm. right? Rather than a moral perspective, what is right, what is wrong, who are we as a people? Instead, it's well, what is the cost of it, you know? And what is the cost of doing something different? And then we compare the costs, mm-hmm. and that is a very dangerous way to govern our lives mm-hmm. for obvious yep. reasons, right? Yeah. Because, you know, the the it's it's far cheaper to destroy the environment than it is to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, that rationally just destroy the environment. But in the long term, that's going to destroy all of our, uh, you know, civilization, human, human, humanity as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Right. Um, and then also the kind of assumptions, the way that the government controls information, it can shape the debate, it can withhold it frequently, very often withholds information. So we're forced to talk about things in which we don't understand or don't have the data or don't know what's going on. Yeah. And and that is way more insidious than the fear, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so um, I want to thank you so much for coming down. Uh, Farhan from Buspass are open. You can find them on Facebook at... Facebook.com slash open. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is like uh, we un- we don't have an Instagram presence so so sorry because I I don't use Instagram mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, keep a lookout for the SWF SWF programming yeah if I'm not wrong I think like the the current like the current SWF event should be right should be out next week and also there are like this time around SWF right there are a lot of really like good authors, good speakers. Uh, you call it, um, you call it the A list of like speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So thank you very much for joining us today, Farhan. And you know, I really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you. And uh, as always, thanks, Sean, for co-hosting. Very good questions. Thank um, you. I feel like I didn't have much to do today. You know, it was really good <laughs> just listening to you talk and uh, the, the kind of insights that you had and questions you were able to ask. You know, I was just, yeah. I enjoyed being a guest on, on uh, an observer on my own <laughs> podcast for a change. It was great. Um, but yeah, and, and then, of course, thank you to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for watching. Uh, as always, uh, if you uh, enjoy what uh, we're doing here at New Narrative, please do join us at newnarrative.com slash join. Do check out our new website uh, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate and check out our sister podcast, Southeast Asia Dispatches, Uh, for more news interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. Thank you very much and see you next time.